This confounder Charyashim Prabhupada ki jai Nantakoti Vaishnava Rinda ki jai Namacharya Shilahari Das Thakur ki jai Krayam Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Dori Tagadadhar Shri Vasadi Gora Bhakta Rinda ki jai Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopina Shaimakunda Radha Kundagiri Govardhana ki jai Vrindavan Dhamma ki jai, Matura Dhamma ki jai, Navadvip Mayapur Dhamma ki jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma ki jai, Dangamai Jayuna Devi ki jai, Bhakti Devi ki jai, Tosi Maharani ki jai, Samaveja Bhakti Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. Namo Vishnu Vadaya Krishna Prasthaya Vijaya Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nitinamane. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pachana Nivase Sisinivadi Paskatiadi Satani. Bandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta Padakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamscha. Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Vitams Tam Sajivam. Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lavita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Vanchakalpatu Bishaki Pasindriya Vitapati Tanar Bhavanavya Vaishnava Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's April 23rd, 2018, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii. Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 30, Description by Lord Kapila of Adverse Fruit of Activities. This is the stuff we don't want to be doing. Text 13. Evam Swabara Makalpam. Evam Swabara Makalpam. 
Tatkalatradayastata Nadriyante Yatapuram Kinasha Eva Gojaram Evam Thus Swabharana to maintain them Akalpam Unable Tut His Kalacha Wife Adayaha And so on Tata So Na Not Adriante Due respect Yata As Purvam Before Kinashaha Farmers Eva Like Gojaram An old ox Relation and purport by Srila Prabhupada Seeing him unable to support them, his wife and others do not treat him with the same respect as before, even as miserly farmers do not accord the same treatment to their old and worn-out oxen. Purport. Not only in the present age, but from time immemorial, no one is liked an old man who is unable to earn in the family. Even in the modern age, in some communities or states, the old men are given poison, so that they will die as soon as possible. In some cannibalistic communities, the old grandfather is sportingly killed and a feast is held in which his body is eaten. The example is given that a farmer does not like an old bull who has ceased to work. Similarly, when an attached person in family life becomes old and is unable to earn, he is no longer liked by his wife, sons, daughters, and other kinsmen, and he is consequently neglected to speak of not being given respect. It is judicious, therefore, to give up family attachment before one attains old age and take shelter of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. One should employ himself in the Lord's service so that the Supreme Lord can take charge of him and he will not be neglected by his so-called kinsmen. Evam Swabaran Akalpam tat kala tridayashtata Nadriyante tapurvam kinasha ivagojaram Seeing him unable to support them, his wife and others do not treat him with the same respect as before. Even as miserly farmers do not accord the same treatment to their old and worn out oxen. So being neglected and disrespected, once we can't give anything anymore. <laughs> you know? <laughs> When, when my mother was dying, she uh, decided against my protest that she wanted to live in an old age home. It was run by my cousin, her nephew. So uh, I'm sure that had something to do with the decision. But it was really interesting and sad and heartbreaking to see how the people there basically were neglected by their family members. So there were people there, you know, their family didn't visit. They had five children, whatever. <laughs> You know, nobody ever came. The staff would say, nobody comes, nobody calls. A lot of these people, of course, couldn't remember who their, who their family were. Uh, but they were neglected. I probably said they're given poison. <laughs> you know, they're, they're put away somewhere. They're, they're not taken care of. Elder abuse is a, is a big problem, even in our so-called enlightened society. But it's not just elderly. I mean... I, I remember when I when I moved in the ashram in the Iskan ashram, so I was you know doing book doing book distribution and I was uh, doing service for the deities. I was polishing the silver, doing the plate transfer, making the garlands. I did a lot of service, and uh, then I got sick with strep throat. I was, I was extremely ill, and 
I was staying in a back room in the, in the ashram. So it was all the way at the end of the hall, and because I had strep throat, I, I wasn't able to speak. I, I pretty much lost my voice above a whisper. And the room that I was put in was, was very dirty. Nobody came to clean it. And no one even came to bring me water. You know, I, at one point someone gave me a little bell, and I would you know, ring the bell when I was thirsty. But maybe somebody stopped by once a day. And it was just, you know, interesting that as soon as I wasn't able to contribute something, then I was forgotten. Nobody even knew that I was there. Um, I, I saw a similar thing happen in, in one temple. The, the temple authorities asked me if I could uh, do some mediation, training mediation, that they were having problem with one of their devotees. And... She had elected never to marry. She had decided, she got inspired by a class that one sannyasi gave, and she decided she was going to live her life as a renunciate. She'd never had anything to do with any man in her life. And she dedicated herself fully to the temple and to the deities. Uh, she was, you know, full-time pujari and just, just taking care of the deities. Uh, you know, very, very, very dedicated, full-on. She had made... You know, Krishna and her family and uh, everything lived in the ashram, lived in poverty and so forth. And uh, then she'd had some medical troubles and she'd had, unbeknownst to the temple authorities, she had had a complete uh, hysterectomy where they took out the uterus and the ovaries. And sometimes when that happens, especially in wounds not that old, uh, and she goes into sudden surgical menopause like that, sometimes her her hormones go a little wacky and it affects her uh, emotions. So she had become particularly emotional. Uh, she'd become, a, you know, somewhat emotionally unpredictable. And for this reason, the temple authorities wanted to throw her out. So they had met with me. They didn't know what the medical problem was at all. You know, and they, uh, they were ready to throw her out of the temple and basically, you know, just, just get rid of her without making any arrangement for her whatsoever. So they asked me to mediate the situation, and I met with her, and then she told me that she'd had this medical problem, and she'd had this surgery, and, you know, becoming somewhat emotionally unstable temporarily is a very common result of this kind of operation. So, you know, I went back to the temple authorities, and I said, she's ill. You know, it's not like she's in Maya or something. She's ill. It's temporary, and if she has to get the proper kind of support she can work through it but I I was just shocked that they were ready to basically throw her out on the street because you know she had started having some medical problems in her life I mean this lady so surrendered she would go to Vrindavan once a year to shop for the deities and she wouldn't make any advance arrangement of where she was going to stay I mean I'd never do that and she would just like show up and find a place Uh, so this is the, the problem you know, as soon as we, you know, we, so if we're giving a lot, if we're a valuable contributor, then people love us and take care of us. And as soon as we're not a valuable contributor, as soon as we have some problem, I get rid of them, neglect them, uh, throw them out on the street. And uh, this is a, a problem mentioned by Raghunath Das Goswami and Srimana Shiksha with the donkey urine bath that one... Uh, one can think that one is doing something purifying, but actually bathing and burning donkey urine. And one of the examples Bhaktivinoda Thakur gives in his commentary is giving special attention to people who are wealthy. Uh, it's the same principle, you know. If you have something to give, if you have uh, if you have something to contribute, then we take nice care of you. And if you don't, we won't. And when I was regularly teaching Manashiksha, I would tell the story of how. Uh, I got a, a small inheritance after my mother died. It wasn't much of an inheritance because my stepmother legally took most of it. Anyway, so I got something, and I gave a donation to uh, one Goshala. So when I came to visit, they were greeting me with garlands and burfi and kirtan and all this stuff. And I told them, you know, look, this was a one-time thing. I said, I'm not a rich person, you know. It was a one-time thing. I got a little inheritance, and... I gave some of it. I, I don't have any more. Uh, but the next year again, they, they greeted me, you know, 
big fancy greeting. And again, I said, look, I, I don't have any more to give. And after that, they completely ignored me. So this is, it, it's just typical. It's, it's really typical that, uh, you know, we give a lot of attention and care to someone who we think is going to give us something or someone who can give us something. And as soon as they have nothing to give anymore, then we're not very interested in them. Then they, uh, they, they really, you know, they don't have anything. So unless somebody has some status to offer or some money or uh, whatever. And, you know, we, we see that one can go from friend to enemy in, in a moment. And this is even within the family. This verse here is being spoken of uh, with the family. So even within our family, even within our best friends, that as soon as we think somebody's not valuable anymore, uh, we neglect them. I, I saw this with one older couple where the wife had always been a, a particularly loving and attentive wife. I'd always thought of her as kind of a, an ideal wife. And then uh, at the end of his life, her husband uh, became deaf. He lost his hearing. And once he lost his hearing, I mean, it is annoying to be with someone who can't hear you, undoubtedly. It's, it's definitely annoying. But she was mostly just annoyed with him. She, she didn't have any compassion for his own isolation due to, due to his loss of hearing. And, uh, you know, after that, when, when I'd visit, I'd notice that she had become very cruel to him. So this is, this is very typical, and it's a, it's a typical situation, as I say, even within the family, what to speak of in other situations. So renunciation is part of life. Krishna says that he is death, and the universal form, kalosmi, time I am. Ultimately, everything that we have including the respect and the consideration and the facilities offered by others, is really coming from Krishna. It's not ours. And he can take it away at any time. So the question is, will we renounce by force and, or we, will we renounce by choice? So here we are being advised uh, indirectly by Kapila Dev and directly by Srila Prabhupada in the purport Renounce by choice. Don't wait until you're forced. Don't wait until you're forced. Before my mother died, she gave away pretty much all of her possessions. You know, before she moved in the nursing home, which was about a year before she died, she gave away almost everything. She kept just enough money to maintain herself in the nursing home. And she said, better to give with a warm hand than a cold hand. It's the same principle. Better to renounce by choice than by force. When Vamandev came to see Bali Maharaj and Sukaracharya was saying, don't give him, don't give him, he'll take everything. And Bali Maharaj said, why not give voluntarily to the Lord that which will be taken by him anyway at the time of death? So, how is it that things can be taken by force? Well, disease can take so many things, not only the respect and care of others, but disease can take away our abilities, our intelligence. Uh, it can take away everything, a disease or an accident. We can be left with, with absolutely nothing. I mean, sometimes, sometimes people say, oh, Krishna took everything. I'm like, everything is a big something. to actually lose everything. But disease and accident particularly have the ability to take everything, all of our ability to function in the world. And then just, you know, what we're talking about here, lack of respect, social problems, difficulties. I mean, one can lose one's respect and consideration in a community over, you know, misunderstandings and rumors. And I know of a situation where a devotee was managing a project and he really put a lot of time and care into managing it nicely and taking care of all the devotees. But one of the other managers felt that uh, they didn't agree with how he was managing it, basically. Like he hired an assistant manager, 
He got all the devotees really nice bedding. He put in a new water filter. I mean, he, he spent a lot of money taking care of the devotees. And when he left the service, the other manager accused him of theft. And because he was accused of theft, he wasn't allowed to attend like japa workshops or attend any of the local temples. And I heard about it. I got Iskand resolved involved in the matter. And it turned out that the theft they were accusing him of was they didn't like the fact that he had spent money on mattresses and a water filter and an assistant manager. And it was that money that they were considered to be stealing. You know, when they gave an account, it was like, oh, you know, you spent $1,000 on a new water filter for the devotees. <laughs> and so, you know, eventually he was cleared of everything. But it was like, you know, he was uh, banned just on the basis of an accusation. So we can lose, we can lose everything uh, that way uh, through, through rumor. Obviously, we can lose everything if we actually do do something wrong. Uh, we can lose things just uh, through the normal problems of life. There's changes in the stock market or we get into a business which isn't, uh, isn't popular anymore. Society changes you know, you, you sell CDs and then nobody has a CD player anymore, whatever it is, you know, the things change and, and everything's lost. Of course, through death, uh, we can lose everything through death, death of ourselves, death of people that we love. We can also lose everything, interestingly enough, by, by mental bewilderment, which comes from the modes of nature. And this is explained in the fall down, what we call the fall down sequence in Bhagavad Gita 262 and 63, contemplating attachment, lust, anger, bewilderment, and loss of memory, intelligence is lost, falling down in the material pool. We can lose everything by that kind of force, by engagement with the modes of nature that pulls everything away from us. And my dear friends, all of us are going to lose everything, for sure. We are all going to lose everything. Sooner or later, one way or the other. I remember talking with Vishnumurti uh, Prabhu of Bhaktivedanta Library Services about selling books. And he said, Ramila, this is the land of the living. He said, when someone's alive and they're promoting their books, people buy them, and once they're dead, then they, but their books just don't sell anymore. And he's one of the biggest booksellers in this kind, I'm sure he knows. He said, nobody cares for them anymore. So, you know, whatever we have, ultimately, it's going to be lost at death all of our education that we've gotten in this life, our connections, family and friends, the respect of others, as being talked about here. I know our money, our possessions, our home, our family, it's all going to be lost at death. Completely finished, absolutely guaranteed for everybody. Nobody is going to escape with anything other than their karma, and whatever uh, they've accumulated in their bhakti. And that's it. Then all these little deaths along the way. So now that we're all sufficiently depressed, let's look at how we can renounce by choice. When we renounce by choice, when we renounce by choice, then it's actually a very happy thing. You know? When you give somebody a gift that's going to be taken away anyway, then it's a pleasant experience. It's under one's own volition, under one's free will. And one should let go of things early. The key is one should let go of things early. So, how are we advised to do this in the Shastra? Well, let's talk about the last way that I mentioned of losing things, and that is by mental bewilderment, where we lose our intelligence. (laughs) When we lose our memory, uh, we become entangled. So to let go of things early is to let go of things in the contemplation stage. That uh, as soon as the as a thought comes to us, I want this, I don't want that, attachment and aversion, that we just simply let the thought uh, go on its way. We don't hold on to it, we don't harbor it. As I've said in the Bible, it says, don't harbor anger. And if you think about that, a harbor is where the boat comes to dock. So our 
the objects of our senses, so the positive and the negative ones, holding on to negative things, what I don't want, I don't want this, I don't want that, I hate this, I hate that, is also a kind of attachment. So when our mind is contemplating, this person did that to me, this bad thing happened, that terrible thing happened, I want this, I want to buy that, if only I could get this, only so that kind of contemplation, uh, not to harbor it, to let those, those thoughts and those feelings come and go, and not to, not to give them a place to stay. Just let them be like rivers flowing into the ocean, which is not affected. The ocean doesn't become larger. It was at the beach the other day, I'm thinking about that. Um, the, the ocean is so powerful, but it doesn't go past its designated line. Um, no matter how many rivers are flowing into it, no matter how much rain there is, so to be like that with our desires, with our emotions, with our thoughts, uh, to let them go, not to be forced by contemplating them, getting attached to them, and then losing everything, uh, losing our intelligence. So that's the most important kind of letting go. And, and any other kind of letting go that we do is, is actually secondary to that. Uh, letting go of these desires to enjoy the world or even to renounce the world, our attachment and aversion, letting them be, not trying to kill them and not trying to embrace them. Uh, Just realizing that I'm the observer. I have nothing to do with this world. I have nothing to do with the pleasures of this world, nor do I have to do with the pains of this world. And when we let go like that voluntarily, then all of the external things, people disrespecting us, neglecting us, uh, whatever, as discussed here, or physically losing our things, uh, it won't matter to us, it won't affect us, it won't be disturbing to us. And other things, are other ways of letting go, are mentioned here as the ashrams, as Prabhupada says, that one should renounce family life uh, before the family throws you out. <laughs> so... Uh, the, the ashrams are steps, are steps in life. They're ways of dealing with the natural life cycle that happens to all human beings in such a way that we are aided in spiritual progress. So the brahmachari ashram is where one is a student, one is dependent upon the teacher, uh, one doesn't have any independence at all, one is told when to eat, when to sleep, huh. Uh, how to dress, what everything in one's life, one is told. And when one becomes uh, an adult and one is fully trained, then one is expected to renounce that student life and one is expected to take responsibility. So, of course, some people may remain as students their whole life, but generally, uh, competent adults are expected to take personal responsibility. So then they renounce being a student, they renounce being uh, cared for as a child. I mean, there's some attractiveness to being cared for like a child one's whole life and having someone else make all your decisions for you. There's something attractive about that. Uh, But one should go on. So those who are able to live a full life of renunciation go to the Vanaprastha or the Sannyas ashram most people take the next step and go on to the Grahasta Ashram. In the Grahasta Ashram, they take responsibility. They take responsibility for a spouse, responsibility for producing good population for the planet, uh, which is not an easy thing to do, to raise good children. Take responsibility for charity, for providing the financial means for the society. They take responsibility for bringing Krishna consciousness into the world according to their particular career, their particular inclination, whether in the field of ideas, the field of government, the field of resources, or the field of artistry. And uh, in this way, they take, they leave the, they give up the life of being maintained as a child. And then once the person reaches middle age, and the children are grown, and they're inclination towards uh, sexual romantic life has decreased and their inclination to try to change the world uh, has decreased uh, then they give up family life and take to the Vanaprastha ashram uh, travel to holy places and uh, stop earning a living 
and dedicate themselves to austerity to try to break the attachments that they've built up in the grahasta ashram to, to a comfortable life and sense gratification and so forth. And they see the spouse more as a, as a friend and as an assistant rather than as a, a sexual partner. And then at the very end of life, to prepare for death, to take the sannyas ashram either literally or figuratively, and to purify one's existence in preparation for death. So then to give up even the, the concept of, uh, of doing austerities, uh, but simply to focus one's mind on the Supreme. So this is a, a natural part of the life cycle. I mean, even people who aren't going through the ashrams, they go to school and then they are involved in romantic and monetary affairs and then they retire and then uh, they finally prepare for death. So, but one should do this intelligently and one should do this at the right time. Uh, one should not have, just like even moving from the Brahmachari ashram to the Grahasta ashram, more and more now people are delaying, delaying, delaying. Uh, let me stay in the Brahmachari ashram as long as possible. And then finally when they enter in the Grahasta ashram, uh, they're past the prime of their life for procreation. They're past the prime of their life for developing a career. Uh, they may end up with an unsuitable spouse because they marry out of desperation. So one should marry at the proper time before one's desires are so strong that one is being forced. And similarly, one should renounce at the proper time before one's family kick one out. Kick one, one out. <laughs> And one should prepare for death at the proper time before one is so racked by disease and infirmity that one has no choice but to just focus on death. Uh, so the ashrams are, they're done earlyish. <laughs> you know, they're done before things become desperate, before things are, are forced on them. Then there's another kind of making a choice to progress, and this is uh, on, a, on a different level. Uh, this is on the level of progressing through the steps of bhakti, and I, I know I refer to to this source quite a lot, but it's one of my favorites, what can I say? So Bhakti Vinod wrote this book, Bhakti Loka, and in the section on Niyamagraha, he talks about that as one progresses through the steps of bhakti, that the expectations, the rules change, and that if we hold on to the previous rules, then they act like chains around our feet. So while the Takur admonishes us not to go too quickly, you know, not to jump ahead of our qualifications, we are also admonished not to go too slowly. And that when the time comes that we need to, to go on to the next step. So Srila Prabhupada speaks about this point a lot. Don't stay a Prakriti Bhakta. Don't stay on the Kanista platform. Come to the Majjhima platform. Don't remain just... Uh, a superficial worshiper. You know, most people in the world, uh, their religion is simply some bodily identification. You know, I'm born Muslim and therefore I'm a Muslim. I'm born Catholic, therefore I'm a Catholic. And they don't really take up religion in a meaningful sense. And those who take up religion in some kind of a meaningful sense, uh, it's often just to try to be happy in the world and they, they think of their religion as better than other religions. And, uh, their religion is often confined to the times that they're in a church or temple, and they don't really try to re integrate religion into their lives. So we should go beyond that. We should go beyond that. We should take the steps up. Or if we want to look at the steps that Rupa Goswami gives in Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu, I mean, I've identified more than 20 ways of understanding the steps of Bhakti. But uh, we have the famous one, that uh, Adushrata until uh, Prema. So Adushrata is, you know, I believe in God. I believe that there's a spiritual process. So, you know, I believe that Krishna is God. I believe Prabhupada's a pure devotee. I believe, you know. That's good. That's nice. That's like saying, you know, I believe that there is a road from New York to Atlanta, but you're not actually driving on it. You're actually doing anything about it. You, you just simply say, yes, I, I believe that it exists. And one should take the next step, Sadhu Sangha, to actually associate with saintly persons. Of course, when one takes that step, 
there will be some sacrifice. As soon as we start really making friends with saintly persons, then some of our old friends and family will reject us and say, hey, you know, you aren't, you aren't, are doing the same things as before. It's painful. Then we take the next step to Bhajana Kriya. We actually start uh, doing some activities of bhakti on a, on a daily basis. You know, coming to the point of chanting 16 rounds, following the four principles, no meat, no fish, no eggs, no intoxication, no illicit sex, no gambling, starting to offer our food, you know, offering our vegetarian food to the Lord with love and devotion and reading the scriptures regularly. And, and that also is, requires some sacrifice. Maybe you can't spend as much time watching your favorite TV show. You, know. you have to get up earlier in the morning. And you can't eat all the things that you want to eat because they can't be offered to Krishna because they've got an internet. You know, it requires some sacrifice. It requires some, some giving up of one's time and one's energy. And then Bhajana Kriya, there's Anista Bhajana Kriya and Nishta Bhajana Kriya. So unsteady and steady. So the difference between, you know, well, I'm going to chant a few rounds every day, as many as I can, to, you know, I'm going to chant at least 16 rounds, come hell or high water. And that also requires some sacrifice. And then what starts to happen is an art and nivriti. And at each of these stages, people bulk and they they bolt. <laughs> they balk and they bolt. <laughs> So the first is the gross anartas, illicit sex and meat-eating, etc. And then it becomes the subtle anartas, gossip and criticism of devotees, attachment to our own liberation, uh, you know, it, our pride, our envy, our arrogance, I mean, all these kinds of things becomes these subtle anartas. And to give them up, and of course, uh, giving them up requires the help, actually all these steps require the help of the Lord, but being willing to give them up. I mean, we all know people who get stuck at these stages. We know people who get stuck at the Adushrata stage. <laughs> you know, I believe in God, but, you know, they never, never do anything. People who are stuck at the Sadhusanga stage, you know, they come to a temple once or twice a year and they have some devotee friends, but they don't actually do anything. And people who are stuck at the Bhajana Kriya stage, where they... They're doing the activities of bhakti, but they don't want to face their anartas. They don't want to deal with the stuff in their heart. And they're, you know, it gets to the point that all their friends are saying, you have a problem with this, and they don't want to face it. So to be willing to let Krishna clean our heart. And I personally think that this, this stage is the greatest sacrifice. Although when you're at the other stages, it seems like the greatest sacrifice is to give up your best friends who don't want to, you know, don't want to hang out with you anymore because you won't go to the movies or something. Uh, other people may think the greatest sacrifice is to chant 16 rounds or to give up their drug of choice or whatever. But what, what, I, what I feel in my own life, in my own progress, is that the greatest sacrifice is to face one's an artist, especially one's really deep-rooted and subtle an artist. That it's, it can be a very intense uh, process. And I see that many people run away from it, and the tendency is to run away from it. No, no, I'm not going to give these things up. I'm not going to give these things up. And then as we progress, uh, as our anartas become reduced, uh, 50%, Prophet said, when our anartas are 50% gone, then basically we're liberated. We're on the platform of nishta, and the modes of material nature have uh, much less effect upon us. Uh, then the sacrifice is what one has to still make a deliberate attempt to think of Krishna. One has to, uh, at this point, one's uh, relationship, eternal relationship with Krishna may, may start to manifest. But one still is in the platform of sadhana. One still has to make the sacrifice of a deliberate attempt to bring Krishna into the mind. A deliberate attempt to keep the, the mind on Krishna's name, form, qualities, and pastimes. And then from that is ruchi, or taste. And generally the first level of that taste is when all the elements are excellent, when the kirtan singer has a beautiful voice and excellent murdanga beats and the prasadam is cooked tastefully and the class is delivered artfully. And, and then we enjoy it, we relish it. And, uh, of course, here the sacrifice is to uh, surround oneself with the 
productive elements in order to nourish one's taste. And then the next is the level of ruchi that isn't dependent on the external elements. And here the sacrifice is looking past the person who sings off tune and the the person whose classes wander all over the universe and really enjoying the essence of, of bhakti, regardless, you know, enjoying the, the prasadam, whether it serves on a paper plate or a gold plate. And then one comes to a shakti. In ruchi, one is relishing the service, one is relishing the... But in a shakti, one is relishing the person, Krishna. So here one gives up one's absorption on the activity and becomes absorbed in the person for whom the activity is for. And then from a shakti one comes to bhava, and at that stage one basically has renounced the subtle body, and one is getting revelation directly from the spiritual world. So in this stage the liberation is completed, and then of course at prema uh, one gives up even any kind of uh, identification with the world one is fully, as I was just reading Nectar of Instruction text, a purport, one is fully uh, functioning in one's spiritual identity. So at each stage there's a voluntary going to the next stage. Even though sometimes Prabhupada says that once we take the process we'll be dragged to success. Better than being dragged to success, uh, which might take a long time and, and not be particularly pleasant at each stage, Better to take the next step at the first indication. So the analogy I give all the time is that Krishna has many ways of herding his cows, getting his cows to go. Not only cows, but he has buffalo and sheep also mentioned in the Bhagavatam. So sometimes I feel like I'm just one of his buffalo. <laughs> anyway, so Krishna has many ways of getting his animals to go where they're supposed to go. I, one of my favorite songs is Bhakti Vinod's cow song, I call it. He talks about, I'm like one of your surrendered cows who will drink the water of the Jamuna even when Kali is there. So how does Krishna get his cows to go? So he calls their name, it's explained in the 10th canto, that Krishna has japa beads made of jewels. And for each bead, he says the name of the leader of a group of cows. So Krishna gets his cows to come by calling their name. Then if that doesn't work, if they still don't come, sometimes, you know, animals are animals. Just like in the story when uh, the cowherd boys after Balaram killed Pralambasura, so they were across the Yamuna in Bandiravan. And they were so uh, happy at Balaram's victory. They were playing and they forgot to watch the cows and the cows uh, crossed the Yamuna. And they were going for the fresh grass and they got stuck in some sharp canes and ended up in a forest fire. Krishna, Balaram, the boys had to go find them. They were calling their names, calling their names. So if we don't come when our names are called, if we wander off, right? When Krishna and the cowherd boys were having a picnic also, right? The calves, that was calves at that time. They wandered off. So if we wander off and don't hear our name, then Krishna calls his Who's that? His flute. Krishna's flute is, uh, you know, we have the story of the Pied Piper as a reflection of that. It's pretty dramatic, Krishna's flute. You know? <laughs> the gopis hear Krishna's flute and they, they leave their japatis on the stove. So Krishna calls his flute, plays his flute to call his cows. If we don't come for the flute, then we've got, you know, the buffalo horn. A nice story in Nectar Devotion, how one gopi saying that she tried to escape the poison of Krishna's flute by hearing the buffalo horn, but it made it worse. <laughs> and then Krishna also has a stick. He has, a, he has a rope that he carries on his shoulder, and he has a stick. So if we've surrendered our life to Guru and Krishna, if we've said, Krishna, I'm one of your cows, I'm one of your cows, then Krishna's going to hurt us where he wants us to go, you know. I mean, not that we don't have the freedom to leave the herd, but he's going he's to hurt us. He's going to direct us. But we should try to go when Krishna calls our name, and at least by the flute, not wait for the stick. 
when there's some indication. Just like when, when the mind starts contemplating, you go, oops, let me get out of here. We don't wait until we've lost our intelligence. You know, but you get, you have people that when, the, when there's a hurricane warning, they board up their windows or they leave, and you have other people, they've got to evacuate them by helicopter. You know? I don't wait to be evacuated by helicopter. You should take Krishna's indications at an early stage. And when we take Krishna's indications at an early stage, then we give with a warm hand instead of a cold hand. Then we renounce things in a way that's blissful for us and blissful for everybody else. Die before dying. Die before dying. And this renouncing early, renouncing at the, as soon as we're ready, not before we're ready, but as soon as we're ready. So as soon as we're ready, as soon as the indication is there from Krishna and Guru that we are ready, then, okay, I'm ready. As soon as Mars Brickett heard that he was cursed to die, he renounced. Let me go. It's time. And we don't have to wait to be dragged. We don't have to wait until we're so neglected by our family or our friends. And, And I found that in following this principle that one becomes a much happier person. So, uh, questions or comments on today's class? Or chastisements? Did you just give me a minute here? Okay. Everybody? Sound is kind of weird. Yeah, I think it's okay now. Um, my question is you talked about renouncing when you're ready. How do we know when we're ready? Sometimes we feel that mood of renunciation and we think we're ready and then sometimes we don't feel that. Uh, therefore, there's uh, guru and sadhus. Mm. And of course, one has to be careful. I mean, I had, I had a situation where I was doing some service that I felt was a significant service and that it was an important service and it was a service that I wanted to do. And then there were some difficulties with some of the, the leadership who were over me that I didn't like the way that they were, they were managing things and arranging things, and it was, it was very... My, my service kept getting frustrated. So basically what I did is I said to Krishna, well, I'm going to try one more time to make this work, and I'm going to use this as a test, and if it, if it doesn't work, then I know that it's, it's time for me to move on. So I, I tried one more time, and again, it was frustrated by the, the management structure. And so I informed everybody in the group that, uh, that I was moving on. And I, I didn't say why, I just said, you know, just time for me to move on. So everyone in the group accepted it except one. There, was one, uh, there were several GBC members on the group, and, and one of them was really pushing me to stay. Uh, whereas everybody else just, they didn't even ask me what... You know, they just said, you know, we respect your decision and so forth and so on. So I'm bringing this up because sometimes when you consult, you also get different um, different opinions from different people. So, you know, one has to, uh, I think especially one should consult with one's spiritual master, uh, with one's, you know, one's shiksha gurus, and especially to consult with people who really know you and really have your best interests in mind. And you have to be careful about consulting with people who have vested interests. So, for example, when I was considering whether or not to go to graduate school, I consulted with a number of people, and I'd say about 70% really encouraged me to do it. One of the people who really discouraged me is somebody who just, on principle, is against devotees getting higher education. It's just one of his principles. He just thinks it's wrong. 
So he wasn't able to give me advice that was pertinent to my particular situation. Because so you, you can't really consult with people who are very attached to some general preconceived notion. Uh, but people who care about you, who know about you, who are knowledgeable about the situation, who don't have some particular personal attachment or preconceived notion. And then there's always prayer. I mean, there's always really saying to Krishna... Um, I mean, in, in another way, there's a very, a very close friend of mine who wa- who'd wanted for many, many years to start his own business. So he has a lot of, he's got a, a, a family and a lot of financial responsibilities and so forth. And you know, it was a little scary. When should I start my own business? So he called me up and said, it looks like I have a good opportunity to start my own business right now. And I said, you know, why don't you pray on it? I said, you know, it sounds to me, I said, everything you're set, set, telling me sounds like it's good. It sounds to me like this is a good opportunity and it's the right time. But why don't you pray? Ask Krishna to give you a sign. And um, I didn't hear from him. And then I called him back like in about a week and I said, what's going on? And he said, wow, did I get a sign that it was the wrong time? And I said, what was the sign? He said, I don't even want to say what it was. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and like a month later, uh, he contacted me again. He said, well, this time it's very clear that it is the right time. He said, this time I'm really saying it's like a now or never. I've got to jump. I've got to do it. I've got to take the risk. And it worked out very well. So uh, prayer is also there. I mean, consulting with the devotees and prayer. And then there's, of course, the Shastra, which gives general guidance. So the Shastra, like uh, Prabhupada says in the first canto that people should marry, he says, latest 24. You know, so that means if you're 22, 23, you probably should really be thinking about marriage and not wait until you're 35. You know, he says, start taking Vanaprasa at 50. You know, you hit 50, it's something you should be, well, maybe you should be taking Vanaprasa. That's what's in the, the Shastras. So there's, there's also indication in the Shastras, at least, you know, of course that indication is in a general way. Uh, it's not going to be specific for our individual situation. But, you know, if, if when we're 28, we've been married for three years, and we say, you know, I want to renounce my family because they're too much trouble, well, that's not really supported by the Shastra. And in fact, we look in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, and it says renunciation because things are troublesome is in the mode of passion and will not give you the proper fruit of renunciation. So we have our, our spiritual master, ideally we can consult with the, the sadhus, uh, being careful to pick people you know, who know us, who are familiar with the situation, who don't have their own dog in the fight, so to speak. And, uh, and the shastra, and then prayer, chaita guru, Krishna in the heart. You know, and, and what's the... Is, is this the right time to embrace something? Is this the right time to reject something? You know, let me let me do it at the first indication. So thank you. That was an excellent question. Somebody Can else? I answer? And just take the opportunity to thank you so much for your association. It's been, for me, very inspiring. Oh, thank you. Look forward to your weekly classes and wish you all of Krishna's blessings well, on your you. journey. Yes, and I would also like to say that uh, um, I have no other... I personally, I, like other devotees on that, so I'm not going to miss your classes. Oh, so thank you're going to keep writing, right? Krishna's, yeah, I mean, Krishna willing. Right, and then you'll have some sort of a presence on the internet or something? Or well, I upload right? my classes regularly to ISKCON Desire Tree, and... Um, also, in some places I go, they video my classes. So those are all, there's a number of my classes up on YouTube. Uh, Melbourne is the best place. I mean, Melbourne, they really, that professional videographer who uses three cameras, and they really make, make top, top quality videos. So, yeah, I mean, Krishna willing, as long as uh, Krishna gives me the strength. And yeah, I'm still writing. I mean, I'm working with Rukmini on a book about career, uh, which is one reason that I talk so much about Varna. So we've been working on that now for... Uh, about a year, uh, we're we're going through the second uh, draft, editing it, and uh, I'm also working with a devotee named Kamala Sita in Germany on a book on meditating on Krishna in the world, how to how to remember Krishna in the 
in our everyday life. So, you know, working on, on those two writing projects, and of course, as, as the chair of the Shastric Advisory Council, so we're we're working on a number of, of uh, philosophical papers for the GBC. You know, that's a whole group of us. So all of that writing, and you know, I have my blog online. So. Krishna willing, as long as, as that's what he wants me to do, and I have the ability to sure, keep doing that. But one thing related to the verse in the purport is Bodine Maharaj. He mm. takes care of the elderly Vaishnavas, aging Vaishnavas. Mm. This is sick. That's lovely. It, it, there's heart in that, you know. I mean, it's sort of a mundane. Prabhupada wrote a poem in Radhadamadar. He, he, at some point, he writes a line that I have to laugh. My family that I. Yes was considering so much to be my own. It's just a list of names. Yes. So, but at the same time, um, Vaishnava should have heart. You know, uh, they, they should take care of devotees, you know, that have given a lot of their lives, a lot of their energy to Krishna consciousness. That she's showing, um, you know, that goes beyond the mundane. Yes, and you have um, Giri Rajmarsh who set up the hospice in Vrindavan. Mm-hmm. Right. So this actually taking care of people, and um, you know that's the other side which we could have talked about today. The other side is not neglecting others. Right. You know, there's. Uh, Prabhupada was focusing on this purport on avoiding being neglected, so I focused on that. But um, yeah, no, an, it was great. another way we could have approached this class is don't be like those ungrateful family members. You know, nice. Uh, don't mistreat others. In fact, one of the the fourteen items of knowledge is gratitude. And that knowledgeable people are grateful. And knowledgeable people do take care of their old worn-out oxen. And they do take care of their of people who can no longer contribute or people who could never contribute. They take care of, you know, people who are born disabled and can severely disabled and can never really contribute. A, a mother who takes care of a, a disabled child selflessly. Yeah, I mean, but some don't, you know. I mean, it's not that everybody does... <laughs> Uh, it's not that everybody does. There are mothers who abandon disabled children. I mean, it's, that's not exactly uncommon. So to, to take care of, of, of beings who can't do anything for us, you know, who could never do anything for us, or beings who did a lot for us and now are, are not able to. You know, in, in modern society, as soon as the cow's milk production drops slightly, then they kill her. You know, they, they kill all the male chicks. And I mean, any, this idea that any, anyone who's not yeah, useful, immediately useful, is, is disposable. So we, shouldn't, we should also take care. I actually really need to go. I can take like two more minutes and then I do absolutely need to go. Well, Sunil Prabhu really wanted to ask you a question. I wanted to say something, but let's see if there's time in two minutes. Sunil Prabhu, go ahead. Yes, Hare Krishna Mataji. Mataji, regarding the two types of devotees, Brahmananda and Gustananda. So being a Brahmananda devotee or desiring only liberation, can it be said to be uh, anatha? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, generally, as followers of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and as followers of Srila Prabhupada, we are really being pushed, in Bhakti Siddhanta, we are really being pushed to be preachers and not simply take care of our own bhajan. So unless and until there's some very strong indication from our spiritual master and the sadhus, we should all try to be working directly and overtly for the welfare of others in some way or another, uh, according to our capacity. And there may be some time there may be some circumstance where it's best for an individual to become a, a bhajananandi, and uh, if that's the direction given by their authorities and the direction, you know, then that may be true for them. But as a general principle, uh, it's not exactly that it's an anartha, but the idea is that one should follow one's spiritual master. 
one should try to please them. So if our authorities are urging us to be preachers, to care for the welfare of others, then it's in an art to, to put our own desires over theirs. Uh, but if they direct us like that, they direct us like that. I want to just close by thanking Ramananda Prabhu for organizing this Isanga and uh, giving me a chance to do some service, putting everything together. Uh, Ramananda Prabhu Ki! And I cut you off and didn't let you. And I'm not going to let you because I have to go.